Welcome to episode 2 of this podcast. The podcast now has a name. It's called Murder Shiro. And it also has some kind of direction. Um, in the podcast, we'll be doing deep dives into cases of femicide in Kenya. And uh, in this episode, we'll be continuing with the story that we started in episode 1. And that is the story of Judy Angaine. There's something that I want to mention right at the beginning, right here, is that I'm going to refer to Judy Angaine as a story, but as I did my research and um, got to know and understand more about her life, I tried to picture her life, like to put myself in her shoes, which wasn't very difficult. And to humanize her, to remember that she's she had a life she had you know aspirations responsibilities she had property and things she was a person and i don't want to get wrapped up in the idea of her of this as just a story um because it's talking about someone's life and i want to be sensitive to that a lot of this episode will focus on march 29th which is the day before she was killed and this is 1978 and again like i said in episode one a lot of this info comes from the murder trial that followed uh, the murder of judy angaine in which um, her fiance david kisila stood trial for her murder and was eventually acquitted so a lot of this information came out during um, kisila's trial and it comes from testimonies and cross-examinations and things like that. Um, another thing I'd like to say is I refer to David Kisila, the man who was accused of the murder of Judy Angaine. I refer to him as her fiancé. And the sources, many sources differ about their relationship. But I found more information to support the fact that they were together and their relationship was of this nature. I don't mean fiancé in the strict Western sense of the word. I mean it in a more Kenyan sense. Um, they lived together. Some um, sources call it come we stay, but they had a joint mortgage, a joint bank account. Um, sometimes Judy used uh, Kisila's middle name as her surname. Um, that's been documented. And um, they had plans to marry. Kisila had actually been to see Judy's father about uh, marrying her. And I'll talk about this more as the episode progresses. But um, this is what I mean that this is her fiancé. And that's what I concluded after all the research I did is that this is the nature of their relationship. Um, but Judy's relationships, I mean, the situation was complicated, just like... I don't mean extra complicated, as complicated as any, as all human relationships are. So then another thing is that she did have a son from another relationship uh, with a man that she was no longer seeing. And then um, other sources. This is another thing that I found. And it's a thing that's not unique to this particular um, case. Um, it is something that I have found 
come up in the cases of women who are murdered um, in that the women are painted as promiscuous or as their character is painted as promiscuous and I feel like that judgment like to call someone promiscuous you know because uh, Judy Angaina was murdered and there was a murder trial that ensued her relationships became under a microscope and I feel like if everybody's relationships were to be examined this way they would be a bit more complex than you know people think that relationships are straightforward and this is this way and you know things are black and white there are a lot of gray areas and human beings are complex and I believe her relationships were complex and I don't mean complex in an extraordinary way I mean in a very ordinary way but um, you do find sources that try and make her out to look promiscuous and maybe even in the trial actually it seemed that um, that did come up like you know Judy Angaine has many boyfriends she has a lot of men in her life and I'm going to talk about the different relationships um, all the information that I found about them and I'll leave that judgment up to each and everyone who's listening to make anyway let's uh, let's get into the story I think I think it's time so I decided to start at the end in that um, the first thing I'm going to talk about in the story is the discovery of the body of Judy Angaine. I didn't want to put it at the end because I feel like we already know that she died. I mean, we're discussing the murder of Judy Angaine, so we know that she already died. And I want to start at that point and work my way backwards because I kind of like um, when they do that on TV, you know, they start at the end and then show you the events and then bring you back to that point and then you can compare what you thought at that point and that now that you have all this information. So I want to give you <laughs> that feeling <laughs> and myself too. So anyway, here we go. At midday on March 30th, 1978, David Kisila, a major in the Kenya army, walked into house number 64, Gay Estate. Nairobi County. David was accompanied by Joyce Mwari, a sister to David's fiancée, Judy Angaine. The house they were going into, it belonged to David and Judy, although the latter, she was nowhere to be seen. Moreover, as David and Joyce stepped through the front door, they noticed that the floor of the house was flooded by water that seemed to be coming from the bathroom. In the bathroom, David and Joyce made a startling discovery. In the bathtub, whose water was still running, lay the lifeless body of Judy Kambura Angaine. She had been raped and strangled to death. The news of her murder broke soon after and a police investigation ensued. The resulting murder trial that saw David Kisila stand trial for the murder of his fiancée, Judy Angaine, well, it, it gripped Kenya for almost a whole year in 1978. It saw several high-profile ministers mentioned, and it ended with more questions than answers. 
How did the daughter of a powerful cabinet minister, who was an accomplished army captain and mother of one little boy, how did she end up dead in her own bathtub? This was what the investigation sought to establish. Although not much information is available about her early life, we do know that Judy Angaine was born to Jackson Harvester Angaine and one of his wives. Judy's father was a close ally of Kenya's first president, Mze Jomo Kenyatta, and he served in his government as Minister of the Powerful Lands and Settlement Docket. Life as the daughter of such an influential man cannot have been bad, and it seems that Judy had many good opportunities presented to her. It must be said, though, that it is apparent that she worked hard and was accomplished at a very young age. Whatever the specifics of her life, it seems that the facts relevant to her murder occurred in the months, weeks, and days prior to her death. At the time of her death, Judy Kambura Angaine was a captain in the Kenya army. For a Kenyan woman in the 1970s, this must have been no mean feat. We also know that she had a son, a young son, by a man named John Lidhimbi, whose character and relationship with Judy came under heavy scrutiny during the murder trial. At the time of her death, she was however not in a romantic relationship with Mr. Lidhimbi. The man who Judy was seeing at the time of her death was one of her colleagues in the army, Major David Kisila, the man who eventually stood trial for her murder. Their relationship was serious. They had a joint mortgage and joint bank accounts. They had plans to marry and Judy even sometimes used David's middle name, Kimeu, as her surname. It would emerge during the trial that Major Kisila had even visited Judy's father and requested Judy's hand in marriage. Jackson Harvester Angaine had, however, shot Kisila down and told him that he had to wait until Judy was through with her army career before he would even allow or consider the marriage. The relationship between Judy and David, however, seems to have gone on despite her father's misgivings and they were very much a couple at the time of Judy's death on March 30th, 1978. On the 29th of March, 1978, a day before she died, Judy had traveled to Molo. She had gone to Molo to run an errand to collect dues owed to her by the Kenya Farmers Association. Now I know this is a Kenya of a different time. I would not know what um, you would need to do to be collecting dues from the Kenya Farmers Association. I don't even know if it still exists, but this is what she'd gone to Molo to do. And many sources report that she had traveled to Molo and back to Nairobi in a car that had been offered to her by Jeremiah Nyaga. 
Jeremiah Nyaga was also a cabinet minister and a colleague of her father. Mr. Nyaga would come to deny this in court that he had offered her a car. This was one of many denials that occurred in the during the trial. Um, many things were implied or said and then the person came to deny them. Um, yeah. Anyway, whatever the means that she used to travel to Molo, Judy returned to Nairobi on the evening of March 29th. It is reported that on arriving in, in Nairobi that she went to her father's office, which was in Arthi House. On arriving at her father's office, she found that he had left the office for the day. She found that he had left for the day. At Arthi House, she ran into another colleague of her father, another cabinet minister named Paul Ngay. Paul Ngay offered Judy a ride home. Judy accepted. It's uh, interesting to note that Paul Ngay was driving Judy to her house in Gay Estate. I didn't, I didn't know about the connection. I didn't actually look too much into it. Um, but <laughs> yeah, he was driving her to an estate named like him. <laughs> After him, I don't know. A few hours later, that same evening of March 29th, David Kisila arrives home at the home that he at the home that he lives in with Judy in Gay Estate, and he finds Judy and Minister Gay drinking. Shortly after Kisila arrived, Judy and Gay left to go to a club. During the trial, the judge sought to establish why Kisila allowed this. You know, it's, it's strange. You've come home, you found your fiancé drinking with another man, and then they actually get up to go leave and go clubbing. And the judge did ask him, why didn't you stop him? And um, this, this is how Kisila responded to that. Kisila responded, Ngei is a big man. There was nothing I could do. Gay is a fearful man. And um, I'd like to I'd like to stop the story over here right now, just just for a moment to discuss Paul Gay. Paul Gay is an extremely colorful character. Um, uh, there's a lot of information about him. It's not. Um, a lot um, in volume but there's a lot of different things that you find about him and I was able to kind of paint a picture of, of this man so I think the first thing that people know about Paul Gay or most people know is that he was part of the Kapenguria 6 and um, I think a lot of Kenyans know what uh, the Kapenguria 6 is but for the, for the benefit of those people who don't know the Kapenguria 6 are six Kenyan nationalists who were arrested and put on trial for being in charge of the Mau Mau. This was um, during the state of emergency in pre-independent Kenya and it was during the struggle for independence. These men were accused of being in charge of a group that was working against the colonial government, working for independence of Kenya, working for 
repatriation of land to Kenyans, um, land that had been um, taken by settlers. So Paul Gay was one of the men who was um, arrested and stood on trial, and he was together with the man who eventually became Kenya's first president, um, Ze Jomo Kenyatta. And um, they're called the Kapenguria Six because they were where the prison was is a place called um, Kapenguria in Kenya. I think this is the information that is most readily available about Paul Gay. But there is a lot of information about him. And um, I'm just going to mention a few of the things that I found out about him. He was in Makerere University. He had attended Makerere University in Uganda. But he had been expelled after stabbing a fellow student over a woman during a college dance. And uh, as part of the Kapenguria Six, he was known to refer to the Lokitong prison where the six were held as the St. Lucifer's Monastery of Lokitong, as there were no women, alcohol, or cigarettes. And then while in prison, uh, former President Kenyatta was rumored to have intercepted Gay's love letters to his daughter Margaret, and he had chided him about hiding the fact that he was gunning to be his son-in-law. The former Kangundo MP, um, he served as Kangundo MP in post-independent Kenya. He was so renowned for this nature that his nickname was Fagia Dunia, and his cabinet joked that he had a girlfriend in every world capital that he visited. In any case, this is the man that, that Kisila came home to. So Judy had been out uh, during that day. She had gone to Molo. She had gone to run her errands. Um, she goes, comes back to Nairobi. Um, she had gone to run her errands in Molo, which is outside Nairobi. And then she comes back to Nairobi. And um, she goes to her father's office, misses her father, but finds Paul Gay, uh, you know, Fagia Dunia. And Fagia Dunia drives her home. And Fagia Dunia is who David Kisila walks into the house and finds drinking with his fiance. And then they leave to go clubbing. And uh, I don't think anybody knew it then, but less than a day later, Judy would be found dead. Um, so let's pick up the story again. So it's said that after Ngei and uh, Judy left Ngei Estate, they club hopped, they went to Langata Club, and then to Woodley Club, and then to Karen Country Club, which are all in the same area of Nairobi. And then after this, they headed home. And then something strange happened on the drive home. It is not mentioned in many sources, but the sources that mention it uh, give quite a bit of detail about this. And this is something that was revisited during the trial, but seemed to have been glossed over. But anyway, this is the incident that happened. So it seems that on the way, so this, this is what the source states. On the way home, it seems that Ngei and Judy um, they had a fight, and the facts were revealed during Kisila's own testimony. 
and it appears that um, Paul Gay on this drive home he had made unwanted and aggressive physical advances towards Judy which she resisted and they wrestled in the car for a while and Gay who was driving and I guess they had been drinking so he might have been a little bit drunk he lost control of the car and they crashed into a ditch and um a Mzungu woman was the first at the crash scene. She offered assistance to Judy, which included a new dress, as Judy's own dress had been torn in the melee. And uh, the Mzungu woman also offered Judy a ride back home to Ngei Estate. On reaching home, she found Kisila, and she told him what had happened. And this is how we know about this incident. Kisila then says he rushed her to Armed Forces Memorial Hospital where she was treated by Rachel Mwadonia who is um, referred to as a nurse in some sources and as a clinical officer in others. I guess, I think she was a clinical officer. So she saw Judy who complained of pain in her arm and heaviness of the head. And she had a bruise um, on her left arm when um, Rachel examined her uh, near the shoulder and she also had abrasions over both knees. Anyway, she was treated and discharged home and that night Major Kisila would report that Judy had complained of pain but that she had slept all right. And um, that is basically where our, our account of March 29th, 1978 and, and I think I'm going to end this episode here. So I think this is where I want to end this episode at the end of that day, March 29th, 1978. By the following day at midday, Judy would be dead. And in the next couple of episodes, we are going to discuss the events of the morning of March 30th and a few backstories um, we'll hear about people who were mentioned as having been associated with Judy either because of um, current or previous relationships with her or because they spent time with her around the time of her death I don't want by any means to you know turn this into a courtroom and make judgments I just want to present the story and share the research that I found just because I think the story is interesting and important. <laughs> Thank you for listening.